0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Jonathan Galassi delivers the Finzi Contini Lecture at the Whitney Humanities Center in the fall of 2011. Entitled, A Translator's Confession, Galassi's lecture is one of the biannual Finzi Contini Lectures in the field of comparative literature broadly defined.
1: For someone who spent his day life laboring as a publisher, It's particularly moving to be asked to come out of the cave of my office, which is sagging with manuscripts that are still not at all virtual, still messy piles of scrawled on actual paper that show signs of the still lively interchange between author and editor that is the lifeblood of my work. And talk not about that everyday life, but about one of my other avocational lives as a translator of Italian poets. As someone partly of Italian extraction whose grandfather came to this country as a boy of 13 in the year 1900 and who spent countless hours of his childhood sprawled on the living room floor, poring over books like The Wonders of Italy, a book I still own and cherish today. The discovery of Italy itself when I was a student in England after college was a lightning bolt, a life-changing experience. To grasp dimly that the riches of Italian art and literature were in some way mine was overwhelming, overwhelmingly moving and inspiring. I remember my first visit to Rome in the spring of 1972 and the sense of disorientation induced by the messy, there's that word again, glory of the city, the piling on of styles, generations, whole civilizations next to and on top of each other, something not unlike the jumble of the mind itself. And I would never be the same. I returned to Italy that summer to the Università per Stranieri in Perugia and started to learn the Italian language and to begin to try to read Italian books. And when I went back to Cambridge in the fall, I began to study Dante. It was after my return to Cambridge Mass in the summer of 1973 that I first encountered Eugenio Montale, the poet whose work has preoccupied me in some way ever since. My friend, the poet Frank Bedart, asked me to try to translate Montale's Xenia poems written after the death of his wife, Drusilla Tanzi, which are the centerpiece of his fourth book, Satura. Frank had read an article about Zania poems by the Cambridge critic F.R. Leavis that had aroused his interest. Those translations were eventually published along with Leavis's article in an issue of the literary magazine Plowshares that Frank edited, and so the seeds of my interest in Montale were sown. <clears throat> my next project embarked on slowly and tentatively was to select and translate his essays, which were published in 1982, After that, I was invited to translate his last published book, Versi*, which had appeared just before he died. Eventually, I decided with trepidation to try to translate his major poetry. I did it because I came to love his work as I have no other modern poets, because it spoke to me in ways I'm not sure I can fully articulate even today, and because The other translations I read didn't capture what I felt I was hearing in Montale. And also, perhaps most importantly, because I felt I could learn about writing, about making poetry, by apprenticing myself, as it were, to a very great writer. Translating has always been, perhaps primarily for me, a school for writing, a way of learning by putting my tracing paper over the poet's work and tracing a drawing which starts from that work, but which with luck and labor eventually becomes something autonomous, something of its own, something of my own. Tonight I want to talk not about theories and ideas of translation, but about my own personal experience as an impassioned amateur engaging deeply with one writer's words. Montale is famous with Italians as well as us for his difficulty for the putative obscurity of his work. There's a certain close, symbolic, even occulted quality to his poetry, part of, part of it dictated by the times in which he wrote. He was notably anti-fascist all through Mussolini's regime, partly by personal circumstance, for he was often writing for and to one woman while living with another, but also partly, and I would say primarily because of the is the poet's own interior, ruminative, symbolizing cast of mind. The meanings of Montale's work are, in the end, entirely discoverable, but the operation often involves a great deal of concentration and effort. One of the principal aims in translating his major work, which is generally agreed to comprise his first three books, was, in fact, to try to unpack this hermetic quality and to make what he says what he actually says in his poems clear, something that many translations fail to do, sometimes because because the translator doesn't in fact understand what the poet is saying. In trying to do this, I resorted to copious annotations, revealing Montale's sources, quoting relevant other texts, referring to the various lexical registers he resorts to, and being as accurate as possible in my versions in transcribing what he literally says, all the while attempting to make something that also feels like a poem. Not all poets require this kind of unpacking, but in Montale's case, it is, I think, both justified and necessary. Yet, in fact, there's nothing dry or even truly difficult about his work, except that it is elusive, interior, and very much his. Making it ours is what I consider the translator's task. That book took me 13 years. I was doing other things as well. And it came out in 1998. I then took a 10-year break from my poet's work to translate the poems of Giacomo Leopardi, the greatest poet of the 19th century, the first truly modern Italian poet, and, important, and in important ways, Montale's greatest modern predecessor. When I Reread him, when I reread him now, as I recently did in preparing a revision of those translations that will be published next year, for even more than poems, translations are never finished, I see Leopardi's presence more and more. Montale is very far from being a translator of Leopardi, but he lifts, borrows, steals from him, and in important ways, his poems have also been traced over the palimpsest of Leopardi's time and death-haunted solitary idols. Montale inhales him. He absorbs and digests and transubstantiates him as poets always do with their progenitors. And it's entirely right to say that Montale could not have existed without Leopardi. My engagement with Leopardi is now gratefully over. (laughs) And I've returned for one last go at my hero and I'm now engaging with his later poetry written in his 60s, 70s, and 80s, what he called the retro bottega, the back of the shop, the poet's own acknowledgement that there is a shift in tone and preoccupation and outlook in the ultimate phase of his career. Where earlier he was passionate, anguished, and rhetorical, in his later work he's resigned, disillusioned, ironic, and seemingly anti-rhetorical, which is in itself a kind of rhetoric, needless to say. Montale is renowned for bringing the undercutting directness and modesty of prose into poetry. It's one of the things that's most modern about him. But in his major work, the tension between poetic afflatus and strict declaration is fruitful and inspiring. In his later work, prose seems to win the day, though there's nevertheless rhythmic and phonic tension in every line he writes. Currently, I'm engaged in translating Satura, Montale's fourth collection, which covers the years of his 60s. And far from being the ephebe, as I once was, the apprentice looking up to the giant, I'm now nearing the age when Montale wrote this work. I've caught up with him somehow. How did that happen? He's still a giant, but I fear I'm somewhat closer to being able to look him in the eye. I'm fascinated by Satura, which means a kind of miscellany, because it feels to me like a transitional book that mediates between the impassioned, desperate novel, as Montale himself called it, of his first three collections, which narrates a cosmic struggle, one might say, between existence and non-existence, or between love and death, love represented by a series of saving female apparitions who develop and transmogrify over time, and death, which is presented early on as a kind of existential blockage, and later mutates into a personified malevolence. The cosmic war between death and love, between evil and salvation, a kind of agnostic Christian confrontation, is the main subject of La Bufera e Altro, the third and greatest of these first books. The storm is not just the all-out struggle with fascism that was World War II, the great storm of the 20th century, but also man's struggle against his own destructive nature. By the time Montale reaches Satura, the struggle is over. The book is dominated by the Xenia poems, elegies for the poet's wife, and the general tone is one of resignation, regret, guilt, even bitterness. At the end of my talk, I'm going to read you my version of Montale's last great romantic story poem a wry, self-ironic account of a final, unrequited infatuation. A farewell, a last echo of the great romantic chronicles that are at the heart of this work. But most of Satra is retrospective, obsessed with memory, as Montale always is, even as a young man. And also with the tools of his trade, there are numerous poems about words, rhymes, poetry itself, and about abstractions, history, reality, mortality, time, ideas that were embodied in dramas before, but here are analyzed without the aid of metaphor, as is so often the case with an aged artist who doesn't have the time or patience to build a chassis to carry around his engine. In his late work, figuration falls away and he preoccupies himself with two realities, meaning and death, and with the technique with which he tries to get close to them. These are the great preoccupations of the diary poems of Montale's 70s and early 80s, before he returns in the last great memory poems of his old age to the great figures of his early work. Montale's words are famous, archaic, idiomatic, drawn from local dialect and technical philosophy, surprising, elegant, and apposite. They are part of the famous difficulty of his poems. And the point of their difficulty, I think, has to do with the difficulty, or better yet, the impossibility of what he is trying to say, of saying what he's trying to say. As he wrote in his famous self-interview, Intentions of 1946, I was obeying a need for musical expression. I wanted my words to come closer than those of the other poets I'd read. Closer to what? I seemed to be living under a bell jar, and yet I felt I was close to something essential, a subtle veil, a thread, barely separated me from the definitive quid. Absolute expression would have meant tearing that veil, that thread, an, ex- an explosion, the end of the illusion of the world as representation. But that remained an unreachable goal, and my desire to get close remained musical, instinctive, unprogrammatic. I wanted to wring the neck of the eloquence of our old Aulic language, even at the risk of a counter eloquence. And later in the same piece, he writes about his ongoing struggle to unearth another dimension in our weighty polysyllabic language, which is perhaps another better way of referring to his importation of the virtues of prose into his poems. Writing itself then, is a life and death struggle for Montale. Arriving at the definitive quid is in effect impossible, but he will, he must try anything to get there. Later in his work, he resorts to catalogs, lists of attributes, definitions, synonyms, wild associations, as he tries to round on, corner and capture his prey, which despite all his brilliance and ingenuity remains elusive. In The Eel, perhaps his most famous poem, The Eel, which stands for the life force, love, eros, the phallus, and poetry itself, see, I'm doing it too, is nominated as siren, torch, whiplash, arrow, spirit, spark, rainbow, and sister, all in one 30-line sentence, each substantive, evocative, and suggestive, but none of them able to convey the whole truth the poet's essential quid. In another later much wilder catalog he refers to his beloved as larva, tadpole, fringe of creeper, partridge, gazelle, zebu, okapi, black cloud, hail before harvest, as if admitting that what the woman is for him in fact he truly cannot say. In Satra, as I say, he rounds on words themselves, obstinate perverse things with identities of their own that can't be bent to the poet's will and whose meanings are sometimes unstable. Here's a poem called precisely Le Parole. Words. Words, if reawakened, reject the best setting, the Fabriano paper, the china ink, the leather or velvet folder that keeps them hidden. Words, when they rouse themselves, are comfortable on the backs of bills, the edges of lotto tickets, wedding or funeral programs. Words ask nothing better than the clatter of keys on the Olivetti portable, the darkness of vest pockets, the bottom of the wastebasket where they end up in little balls. Words aren't happy at all at being ejected like whores and welcomed with furious applause and dishonor. Words would rather sleep in a bottle than endure the indignity of being read, sold, embalmed, put in cold storage. Words belong to everyone, and hide in vain in dictionaries, because there's there's always the turncoat who digs up the smelliest, rarest truffles. Words, after an eternal wait, give up the hope of being spoken once and for all, and then dying with whoever owned them. There's a universe of histories and attitudes reflected here, of references to Montale's work and to his methods of composition. For instance, in a famous story essay about writing his motetti, Two Jackals on a Leash, he writes about his alter ego, the poet Mirko, who wrote poems in his head, transcribed them onto pieces of paper that he kept balled up in his jacket pockets. And earlier in Mediterranean, which is a kind of anti-denuncian ars poetica and staking out of literary territory. He wrote, if at least I could force some small part of your raving into this halting rhythm, if I could harmonize my stammer with your voices, I who dreamed of stealing your briny words where art and nature fuse, the better to shout out the sadness of an aging boy who shouldn't have been thinking. But all I have are threadbare dictionary letters, and the dark voice love dictates goes hoarse, becomes whining writing. All I have are these words which prostitute themselves to anyone who asks. Only these tired phrases the student rabble can steal tomorrow to make real poetry. In fact, everything in Le Parole is already here in Mediterranean, the desire to fuse art and nature The mistrust of language, the disdain for writing itself, for its failure to become real poetry, that is to shout out the sadness of an aging boy who shouldn't have been thinking. Then there's this little poem, a kind of companion piece to Le Parole about an especially annoying, unavoidable kind of word, the rhyme. Let's hear it in Italian first. Listen for the rhyme of the first and last line. Le rime. And pardon my Italian accent, please. Le rime son più noiose delle dame di San Vincenzo. Battono alla porta e insistono. Rispingele è impossibile. E pur che stiano fuori si supportano. Il poeta decente le allontana, le rime. Le nasconde, barra, tenta il contrabando, ma le pinzocchere ardono di zelo, e prima o poi rime e vecchiarde Busano ancora e sono sempre quelle. The rhyming of the possessive article delle, of thee, and, and the pronoun quelle, them, is an unusually emphatic, self-conscious, untoward thing to do, not a normal rhyme but a potent, witty, outsized, insolent one. A sardonic comment on the invili- inevitability of rhymes, which are everywhere, even where they shouldn't be. While the hidden rhymes, porta su and "ardono vecchiarde, exemplify the cheating and smuggling in the poet evokes. Here it is in English. I have, I'm still working on this. I have to try to smuggle in a few rhymes eventually. Rhymes are more annoying than the Sisters of St. Vincent. They knock at the door, insistent. Evicting them is impossible, but they're only tolerable if, they, if they're kept out. The decent poet sends them, rhymes, away, hides them, cheats, or tries to sneak them in. But the old fanatics burn with zeal, and sooner or later, rhymes and old, bi- and old maids They buzz again, and it is always they. Words, then, are a big problem for Montale. They're all he has to convey, his fundamentally ungraspable meaning. And in the end, for all his tergiversations and contortions, all his inventiveness, his willingness to resort to any kind of word to express the definitive quid, they somehow don't do the job. Not only that, they do their own thing as well. And Montale's words are a problem for me too. They go to the heart of the translator's problem as I've experienced it, which brings me to the first part of my confession. I'm here to confess my own difficulties with Montale's words, my difficulties in grasping his sometimes abstruse vocabulary or vocabulary that is difficult to me because like many translators, my Italian is primarily Italian out of books, dictionary Italian, not the language of daily speech. And dictionary Italian, even if Montale's vocabulary is itself often another kind of dictionary Italian, or even at times so obscure that it can't be found in dictionaries, dictionary Italian can get you only so far with real writing. Each writer has his own gergo, his own private idiom, and Montale's is a very special blend of specialized philosophical language bourgeois koine, Ligurian dialect, still novistic love language, classical borrowings and imprecation with the occasional obscenity thrown in. Here, for example, are a few words from Satura that astound and intimidate and fascinate me. They annoy me precisely because they send me to the dictionary, the very thing Montale complained about, but I think they tell more about the magic and the true import of Montale's poetry than anything. Let's start with Pizzocchere from Le, R- Le Rime. Then there's Azolante, Epoche, Geldra, Paltra, Scolaticcio, Gracidante, Similori, Pezzaccio, Cerusico, Randello, Bordito, Cianfrusaglie. It doesn't really help that there are plenty of Italians who don't know these words either, because I feel they must sense these words differently from me, even if they're not familiar with them. Even if they don't know some of these words, perhaps they can pick them up contextually. I suppose I can do this myself too, to a lesser degree, but I can never know if I really know everything about a particular word, if I'm really feeling it, understanding it viscerally. My experience of it is always necessarily external, and somewhere deep in me, That compromises my translation for me, calls it into question, makes it potentially fraudulent. I'm stuck in my own language with our own much bigger but incongruent vocabulary as I attempt my own revision of Montale's poem. There's really no way I can find reasonable equivalents or representations of what these words do in and to Montale's poems. I can't be inside his work can't be one with it, can't achieve identity with it, can't reach its definitive quid. This is the fundamental limitation and frustration and inauthenticity of translation. Just as in Montale's poetry at one point, just as in Montale's poetry at one point, he aspired, it aspired to the condition of poésie pure, of music made from words where art and nature fuse, I aspire, in my translation to completely recreate my target by other means, and it's a frustration without a possible fulfillment. Some critics have argued that, as an essentially hermetic poet, Montale isn't interested in conventional communication at all. Guido Almanzi and Bruce Mary accuse the Madrigali privati, the private madrigals near the end of La Bufera, of being willfully noncommunicative folding themselves round in the most inscrutable protective barrier of autism. They're insolent poems which do not want to be read at all and which oblige the reader to be insolent himself to eavesdrop and bug the nostalgic mutterings of their author. My own view is that what is communicated in a poem is in fact not conveyed in the words themselves that underneath them lies an understanding, an attitude, an angle of attention to the universe that is the poet's actual message. The words, some words, are essential to this operation, but they are vehicles only. They, in the end, thank God, are not the point. The essential strangeness of the other language can impart mystery, too. Here's a small example of the fascination and frustration of Montale's otherness for yours truly. Que mastice tiene insieme questi quattro sassi? In some ways, all of the enigma of translation for me is here in these few words, which many might find prosaic. Though the phonics of these lines and their rhythmical properties belie the so-called prosiness of Montali's later work. The repetition of A sounds, of the diphthong ye in the first line, the repetition of Q q q and E and S sounds, and of double letters TT and SS in the second. Repeat them a few times and these lines begin to sound more like an incantation than a prosaic question. What is mastice? It's not a word I knew when I first came across these lines. It's no doubt an everyday word, but I couldn't imagine it has anything to do with mastication. The context told me it had something to do with adhesion, but its mystery preoccupied me for a long while. As a translator, I'm almost superstitiously reluctant to open a dictionary and dispel the mystery. And the poem too, the rest of it reveals that in fact, There's nothing prosaic about Montale's observation of what holds these four stones together. William Aerosmith, the granddaddy of Montale translators, renders it as mortar, but the term feels more generic, more existential to me. And here's the poem. What glue binds these four stones together? I think of the angels scattered here and there, unseen, unfeathered, unformed and without eyes as well, ignorant, in fact, of their appearance and ours, even if they're a stronger counterweight than the point of Archimedes. And if no one sees them, it's because it takes other eyes that I don't have and don't want. The truth is on earth, but she can't know it, can't wish it without destroying herself. So we need to pretend there's something here between our feet, in our hands, not act, not past or future, and even less a wall to get over, we need to pretend that motion and stasis have the sense of nonsense to understand that the still point is a nullified all. The Mastice in question, it turns out, is philosophical, not architectural. Or take a line like this, Il notaro ha bifato le lastre. In the little poem, Il Notaro, the poem goes, Il notaro ha bifato le lastre dei miei originali, tutte meno una, me stesso, già bifato all'origine e no da lui. The notary has canceled the plates of my originals, except for one, myself, canceled at the start and not by him. The first line reminds me of the opening of a very late, very short Montale poem. Quel bischero del merlo è arrivato tardi. I piccioni hanno già mangiato tutto. Bischero, in fact, is Tuscan slang for the male member. It's like saying that putz or that jerk of a crow got here late. The pigeons have already eaten everything. Now, what is the difference between a notaro and a notaio. Is notaro merely a Ligurian or Tuscan localism, or is it a sly nod to the great 13th century Sicilian poet Jacopo da Lentini, known as Il Notaro, who supposedly invented the sonnet? Does it help to know that Montale comes from a long line of notaries? Would an Italian reader know any of this? Does Bifato, in fact, have the faintly satirical air it seems to me to have? And which Biscaro certainly has, or am I making false associations, importing sound sense from my own language? Il notaro abifato le lastre is arcane to me, mysterious gibberish. Before I reluctantly start to dig into it and free it of its occult nature, reel it in, bring it down to earth. That's the hard thing with a poet like Montale, because if you're a partly endowed knower knower of Italian, which is all I can possibly be, how deep down can you get into his language? How do you learn that notaro is a version of notaio, and what the difference is, and why he makes the point of using it? And how, if at all, am I going to be able to indicate any of this in my translation? How idiomatic, how close to the original should a translation be, there are at least three approaches to this subject that go back at least as far as the great John Dryden and that which still, and which still inform the translation debates of our time. All translation, I suppose, Dryden writes in his preface to Ovid's epistles of 1680, may be reduced to these three heads. First, that of metaphrase, or turning an author word by word and line by line from one language into another. The second way is that of paraphrase, or translation with latitude, where the author is kept in view by the translator so as never to be lost, but his words are not so strictly followed as his sense. The third way is that of imitation, where the translator, if he has not now lost that name, assumes the liberty not only to vary the words in sense, but to forsake them both as he seeks occasion, and taking only some general hints from the original, work as he pleases. In our time, there have been at least three notable approaches to poetic translation, which I will call after their main proponents, Vladimir Nabokov, Robert Lowell, and Elizabeth Bishop. Nabokov, on the evidence of his famous debate with Edmund Wilson over Pushkin's Eugene Onegin, was a strong proponent of literalism, a diabolical form of metaphrase. He felt a great works greatness inhered inescapably in its language, and the best and most responsible thing a translator could do was to reproduce and explicate this. A translation for him is basically a trot. The great translator, David Bellos, in his wonderfully fresh and brilliant new book, Is That a Fish in Your Ear? Translation and the Meaning of Everything, really the first original thing on translation in ages, calls Nabokov's view threadbare and misleading, intended in Belos' view to p- conceal the disappointing to him fact that Nabokov was not Pushkin. He knew it, <laughs> and so, He knew it, and and so he preemptively reduced translation to a mechanical, in fact, sub-literary process. Robert Lowell, a manic reviser and stealer, in Eliot's best sense of the term, was virtually Nabokov's alter ego. He viewed his imitations as starting points for what became his own expressionistic texts, opportunities to take off from his originals on flights of his own, somewhat akin in their own way to Picasso's late career variations on Rembrandt, Rubens, Delacroix, Angre, and others, where the artist overlays his own preoccupations with sex and death over his conversations with his dead masters. Lowell demonstrates a sometimes cavalier lack of concern for his originals. In one of his versions, two Montale poems are forced together into one, probably because they followed one another in a Penguin anthology. That's true. His friend, Elizabeth Bishop, deplored his lack of knowledge of the languages of the originals, and his lack of interest in accuracy was anathema to her. But these mattered far less to Lowell than having something to grapple with, to take off from, to use for his own purposes. His poems were not translations, but as he called them, following Dryden, imitations. And they deserve to be considered as such. Bishop's translations, by contrast, are marvels of accuracy and tact, which at their best become independent objects, poems in their own right. She chose her targets, one feels, because of some sensed affinity of personality, character, or poetic outlook. Her translations of Carlos Drummond de Andrade and Octavio Paz, for instance, both of whom she knew, are remarkably faithful renderings of these poets, which at the same time become extensions of her own poetic domain, fusing two poetic visions into one. I'm reminded of her poem, Poem, in which she writes of an unknown painter of a family heirloom. Our visions coincided. Visions is too serious a word. Our looks, two looks, art copying from life and life itself, life and the memory of it so compressed they've turned into each other. I would say Bishop aims to be a metaphrastic translator, to adhere as closely as possible to the literal meaning of their originals. Yet to achieve her aim of making the poems effective instruments in her own language, she occasionally has to move from metaphrase into paraphrase, and even more occasionally to the wilder shores of imitation. Now I'm asking Kim Hastings to come up here because she's gonna read the Portuguese of a couple of things here. Let's take two wonderful examples from modern Brazilian poetry. The first is the iconic Poema de Sete Faces of, or seven-sided poem by Carlos Drummond de Andrade, arguably the greatest of all Brazilian poets. Here's the sixth stanza.
2: Mundo, mundo, vasto mundo. Se eu me chamasse Raimundo, seria uma rima, não seria uma solução. Mundo, mundo, vasto mundo. Mais vasto é meu coração.
1: Literally, this stanza says, world, world, vast world. If I were named Raymond, it would be a rhyme, but not a solution. World, world, vast world, my heart is vaster. But Bishop's version reads this way. Universe, vast universe. If I had been named Eugene, that would not be what I mean but it would go into verse faster. Universe, fast universe, my heart is faster. Instead of attempting an impossible metaphrase, trying to rhyme the word world, or Bishop's choice universe, which somehow evokes the globe on the Brazilian flag in the process, instead of trying to find an impossible non-existent name that rhymes with universe, Bishop attempts to recreate the pattern of the original, perhaps not quite fully successfully, but comes up with three rhymes Eugene mean verse universe and faster vaster where Drummond has only two. She cannot quite match the incomparable finesse of Dr- Drummond's rhyme that is not a solution and veers a little dangerously into imitational territory but she recovers nicely with her clothes the second. Example is Bishop's version of the great Soneto da Intimidade of the poet songwriter Vinicius de Moraes. Moraes's original goes.
2: Nas tardes de fazenda, há muito azul demais. Eu saio às vezes, sigo pelo pasto, agora mastigando um capim, o peito nu de fora no pijama irreal de há três anos atrás. Desço o rio no val dos pequenos canais para ir beber na fonte a água fria e sonora. E se encontro no mato o rubro de uma amora, vou cuspindo-lhe o sangue em tomo dos currais. Fico ali respirando o cheiro bom do estrume entre as vacas e os bois que me olham sem ciúme. E quando por acaso uma mijada ferve, seguida de um olhar, não sem malícia e verve, nós todos, animais, sem comoção nenhuma, mijamos em comum numa festa de espuma.
1: And here's Bishop's, thank you, Sonnet of Intimacy. Farm afternoons, there's much too much blue air. I go out sometimes, follow the pasture track, chewing a blade of sticky grass, chest bare, and thread-pair pajamas of three summers back. To the little rivulets in the riverbed for a drink of water, cold and musical. And if I spot in the brush a glow of red, a raspberry, spit its blood at the corral. The smell of cow, ma- cow manure is delicious. The cattle look at me unenviously, And when there comes a sudden stream and hiss, accompanied by a look not unmalicious, all of us animals unemotionally partake together of a pleasant piss. One might argue that Bishop's poem is marginally less free-spirited than Marais, but her unenviously and not unmalicious, not to mention the magical last line, capture the sweet, sly, sexy anthropomorphism of the original. This poem to me is a masterpiece of translation. What matters here, what always matters finally, is getting the poet's tone, the subliminal message that is locked inside the often impossible words, what David Bellis calls the pattern of the original that is in fact what must be conveyed. You can make mistakes as a translator and everyone does. You can leave things out as you must, Paraf- paraphrase extravagantly as long as you can find a way as Bishop did to translate your poet's tone into your own way of writing in your own language. There are always mistakes in translations once you try not to make them, to learn everything one can about your target poet's work, to catch every illusion, to understand every word but the prime task, in fact, is not to fail to see the forest for the trees, to be caught up in the words themselves to the detriment of their message, which exists, in fact, not in the words themselves, but in the unnameable something, the essential quid that the words carry. Tone is what the line, the rhythm, the voice of the poem conveys, and this can be translated. Translation, in my view, in my experience, is an activity in which the labor lime, the act of revision, continues endlessly, as indeed it does with the poem itself. For me, translation is essentially a game, a challenge, a test, a competition, an agon, an ordeal with an opponent who has always already won. It's a way of measuring oneself, rubbing up against something, getting close to it, getting in bed with a writer whose work somehow in the process becomes partly one's own. It's a way of writing where some of the rules have already been set. Part scrabble, part crossword puzzle, part test of ingenuity, but also an opportunity for flight. That's the second part of my confession. In the end, no matter how metaphrastic, how seemingly faithful to the original the translator's creation appears to be, He or she is openly or secretly aiming to achieve the moment when the translation achieves liftoff, slips the surly bonds of the engendering text and becomes an autonomous object, a poem in its own right. At that point, literal and tonal accuracy so labored over up to this moment are left behind and what comes to matter is the internal integrity of the newly created text its own nuances and undertones, its own approach to a definitive quid, which is not the originals, but now its own. Tradutore, traditore? Yes, in one sense, perhaps. But in the end, the autonomous poem that has grown into true siblinghood with its peer is really the only truly worthy translation. Luckily, literature is full of examples. Catullus's Sappho, Wyatt's Petrarch, Pound's Cathay, bishops, Vinicius de Moraes, great instances of deep cultural transmission, translation from the mind and world of one maker to the mind and world of another. I want to close by exposing you to my own in-process effort to translate what I consider Montale's last great poem sequence or story poem, Dopo una fuga written in 1969, is an account of the poet's infatuation with a young woman who suffered from mental illness. It's an ironic, typically self-deprecating revisiting of Montale's major engagements with other heroic feminine figures of his life, Ecclesia or Volpe or Mosca, in a minor key. If, if you hear echoes of English poetry in my version, let me assure you that they are Montale's, not mine. Our hero's work, too, is threaded through with evidence of his deep engagement with our own poetic fathers. As a translator, I aim for metaphrase, for as close an adherence as possible to the poet's primary meaning. It's not always feasible, but it's my way, at least until, as I say, the translation starts to lift off and becomes something of its own. Then all bets, or most bets anyway, are off, and the poem is no longer his but mine or better yet, somehow, then it belongs to both of us. Two looks that somehow, to some degree, coincide. After a Flight. There were birches, stands of them to hide the hospital where someone suffering from too much love of life was stalled, hanging between everything and nothing. A cricket chanted perfectly in key with a therapeutic plan, and the cuckoo you'd already heard more economically in Indonesia. There were birches, a Swiss nurse, a few half-wits in the courtyard, an album of exotic birds, a phone, some chocolates on the nightstand. And I was there, of course, and other nuisances, trying to provide the kind of cheer you would have overwhelmed us with if only we'd had eyes to see. I had them. Your way of walking isn't sacerdotal. You didn't pick it up abroad at the school of Jacques d'Alcroze, affectation more than ritual. Yours came from Oceania, along with a few fish bones in your heel. Relations, doctors, residents all ran to help, not understanding that those coral reefs aren't le focette, but the foam of the beyond, the escape hatch from the here and now. Three fish bones in your foot, not three shark fins that you might have eaten, after which an artificial sleep enveloped you, a little murmur while you dialed direct, a long prefect's complaining operators. Then nothing on the line, not even a light step muffled by carpet, an aquarium asleep. The Amerindians, if you were raised up by a whirlwind and set down inside the vegetable tangle they delve ever deeper into to escape the white man, those immortals would have showered you with tom-tom salutations, though you lack the long slant eyes of the Mong- Mongolians. Their flight went on for ages, many generations certainly. Your short ones saved you from the dark or the claw that held you hostage, and now I don't need the phone to hear you anymore. My path has wandered among demons and gods which can't be told apart. It was all a marketplace of masks and beards, a volapuk, a guarani, a painful babble no one understood. Don't ask me why I fixed on you, thanks to what face and voice you found your way into a head that's deaf from too much traffic. Some link or loop attached itself to me, and clearly you don't know a thing about it. When we first met, I felt your mind evaporating. Mine wasn't much better. You tossed a tumbler out the window, then a shoe, and you'd have followed too if I hadn't been standing vigil next to you. But you're oblivious. No point in asking if it was a dream, a noose, a trap, I know that your path straddled hell as well, and it was like saying goodbye to an uninhabitable heaven. While I think of you, the pages of the calendar fall as fast as leaves. The weather's terrible this morning, and time is even deadlier. What's best in you exploded among mastic's brambles, brooks, frogs croaking, the short flights of wading birds I didn't recognize They're called the Knights of Italy, for God's sake. While I slept sleepless among mildewed books and notepads, the worst in me exploded too. The desire to have back the years, to cheat swift-footed Kronos with a thousand ruses. They say I don't believe in anything but miracles. I don't know what you believe in, yourself maybe, or you let others see you and invent you. But this is superhuman. It's the privilege of those who hold the world up unawares. When we reached the village of the Nazi massacre Santana with its abruptly overhanging hilltop, I watched you scramble up it like a goat with a slender Polish girl and the water rat, your guide, the greatest Ibex of them all. Planted in the piazza for five hours, I counted the names of the dead on the monument and made myself an honorary member like a fool. At night, a motor launch took us bucking down the Burlamaca, a canal of dreck a mock mock refinery empties boiling water into, maybe a foretaste of hell. Burlamaki Kaponsaki, ghosts out of heresies and unreadable poems, poetry in the sewer, two ever inseparable problems, but I didn't tell you. Slow to absorb neologisms, in my early morning stupor, I was undecided if the winged thing on which I planned to spirit you away was hovercraft or hydrofoil. Meanwhile, you'd escaped with a strapping water rat, better organized than I, and sad to say, much younger. I wandered all day slowly, pondering that no such thinking ran between Lear and Cordelia. And other mad comparisons failed, too. I came back with a group that visited the Lucamoni tombs, dens of aristocrats dressed up as thieves, some Piranesi prison streets of old Livorno. I waded through a maze of trash. The sky was stunning but horrific coming home. And the comparison with tragedy went up in smoke as well. For after all, I'm not your father either. I cannot breathe without you, Keats to Fanny Braun, whom he snatched from oblivion. It's strange my case, if you'll permit, is different. I breathe much better if you're not around. Nearness brings us moments to remember, but not the way they happened as we imagined them, like smelling salts for the future, just in case, or medicated vinegar, but no one faints to get, But no one faints today over trifles like a shattered heart. It's these hoarded facts that bear the brunt, but add the corpse and the scaffolding won't hold. I won't try to explain. I know that if you read me, you're convinced you offered me the impetus I needed, and the rest, as long as it's not silence, matters little." And then he wrote, but did not publish, with the poem, this typically ironic grace note, a piropo, or a flirtatious, flattering love comment, typical of Buenos Aires. Piropo, in conclusion. Your arms are marvels. When I'm dying, hold me, but don't wear your sweater. Thank you.
0: Established in 1990 by the Calabresi family in honor of Bianca Maria finzi Contini Calabresi, mother of Guido Calabresi, former dean of the Yale Law School, the finzi Contini Lectures sponsor speakers in the field of comparative literature. The preceding presentation, delivered by Jonathan Galassi, took place at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center on November 9, 2011.